From MPB Think Radio, this is Now You're Talking with Marshall Ramsey, and happy Monday. Hey, today we're excited to speak with two amazing artists. First, our guest author is author, historian, and professor. Katie Simpson-Smith will be joining us, and we'll talk with her about her newest novel, Free Men. And later we'll speak with Dondre Jones, who was diagnosed with a muscular disease that changed his life, but he uses music to help him fight. We'll also share some of my post-election thoughts as well. You can join us today at 877-MPB-RING, or you can email us at marshall at mpbonline.org. We'll be right back after the news. This is MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. From MPB Think Radio, this is Now You're Talking. I'm Marshall Ramsey. Happy Monday. Hope you're having a good day on this very dry day. It's a little, well, it's, we've been in a drought for a while, so when you hear them actually say in the forecast we're going to get a chance of rain, that's a good thing. Sharita, how are you today? I'm doing very well. How about you, Marshall? I'm doing well. I'm a little cold, I'll be honest. I'd uh, be honest with you, I am too. So if <laughs> I am, you? then it must be very cold. So you're not teasing me about being cold today? No, no, no. I figure you're probably dying in there because it's, um, <laughs> you know, for me, it's uncomfortable. For you, you're like like the abominable snowman in there. I, I woke up and drank up. some eggnog. I've been on my eggnog lately. So Eggnog? You're yes. getting into the Christmas spirit a little bit early. It has nothing to do with Christmas. It has everything to do with me loving eggnog. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. Just straight I, I eggnog, did. right? Yeah, uh, well, you know. The special recipe. Well, this morning it was just uh, well, regular non-alcoholic. Okay, I didn't know where the show was going to go today, so I was just, just checking. Don't try to get me in trouble on the air. I was just seeing how you got because I know you like got about three hours sleep last night. So. I know, I know. I had a great performance in Birmingham, Alabama at the Stardome Comedy Club with Ricky Smiley, who celebrated 27 years of comedy. So Sweet. Got to perform for him, and he started his comedy career nineteen when he was 19 years old, years old and so he talks about meeting Steve Hart. Harvey and Steve Harvey uh, encouraging him as a young comedian. And then he met me and he's encouraging me as a young comedian. So everything is just going full circle right now. See, and that's so important. I think a lot of people forget that. And I'm always really receptive to any kid that wants to come in and see my mm-hmm. drawing table and wants to draw cartoons because yeah. I know it's tough and it's a tough road ahead of them. But who, who am I to discourage any kid? Right. Because somebody helped me along the way, too. That's that's great, Sharita. I'm glad to hear that one. Um, you recovered from the election. I think everybody still kind of got a little bit of a hangover from that. Yeah, I'd say so, too. I, I've, I had to unplug and detach from Facebook for a while because... It was just so aggressive and yeah, I pulled back hateful. From it. I mean, it's always like that. <laughs> Sometimes when it when dealing with politics in particular, there's just no limits, no boundaries for what people will say, and I just couldn't keep consuming it. So it's I, been getting worse. It's been getting worse as the election's been going on. In mm-hmm. the last week, it's been particularly tough. I pulled back, and I kept thinking, boy, Thanksgiving is going to be a lot of fun this year in a lot of houses. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> I'm sure some people probably are going to have like instead of kids table and adult table, they'll have a Trump table and a Hillary table, and then and it's interesting you say that because. Because a lot of families are torn. I mean, there yeah. have been some heavy political discussions among family, and it has gotten heated, to say the least. Yeah. I've, I've witnessed it. <laughs> well, I have a few thoughts on it I'd like to share. And um, I, I've kind of typed this up thinking about it, and I think it's worthy of thought. It's a week after the election. Many of you are still trying to pr- process the results of last week's vote. Some of you were happy. 
Many of you aren't, and some of you are shocked, and I'll include the president-elect in that category. I don't think he's expecting to be president, but he is now. For the fourth time in our history, the loser of the popular vote won the Electoral College, but the system worked like the Founding Fathers had envisioned, and now we have to sort our way through the outcome. And I'm not going to tell you how to feel about it. Nope. Now you have the right to your opinion just as much as I have the right to mine. And I will say, though, I haven't seen America this divided in my lifetime. Well, I am too young to remember Vietnam and civil rights movement. I was alive then, but uh, you know what I mean. You've probably read Facebook this week, as Sharita and I were just saying. Uh, But somewhere along the way, we've lost our collective minds. It has become popular to paint people who disagree with us with a broad brush. And people who disagree with us now are 100% evil. See, gone are the days of Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, two men who didn't agree on much of anything, having a beer together. Now it's all or nothing. See, I have a theory on why this is happening. You see, we've had a steady diet of commentators on television and radio vilifying people who don't share their point of view for nearly a quarter of a century now, and we're now shocked when Americans do the same? See, that's like being shocked you have a mouthful of cavities after you eat sugar after every meal. Sure, that sugar's tasty, but not healthy over the long run. See, empathy has gone the way of the dodo bird. Lord knows I've been called about every name of the book this week. And see, I'm a big boy and I can handle it. Been doing this a long time. But it sure has made me lose respect for a lot of people. See, the best insult I got this last week, I got this, this one made me crack up. You're stupid. Except they spelled your, you, I mean, Y-O-U-R. I about just did something stupid, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was ironic and hilarious. <laughs> but I understand. People are hurt. They're mad. They're scared. I get that. That's why they voted like they have. But... There And that's why they're in the streets in the election protesting. Uh, it hadn't been a bucket of chuckles since the Great Recession. Now, trust me. Like I said before, I'm not telling you how to feel. But let me share with you a quote I stumbled across this morning from Gandhi. Be the change that you wish to see in the world. If you don't agree with the election, organize, get focused, and work the system to get your candidates in power. If you think your side is being portrayed unfairly, don't act the way you're being portrayed. Simple as that. Use your energy to change things, not just to slam people on Facebook. Talk to people. Get outside of your a la carte news bubble. Read opposing viewpoints. Read news sources you think are biased. Figure out the truth for yourself. Don't have it spoon-fed to you. And just because the news isn't spoon-fed to you, that doesn't mean it's biased. It just might mean that your comfort zone is being breached. And that's not a bad thing. And please, please stop using the terms and talking points you hear the commentators use. That makes your arguments sound weak, very weak. Hey, America's facing some pretty tough challenges. The good news is that you have the power within yourself to make your world a little bit better. Accept responsibility, take action, and if you truly are worried, find a way that you can make a difference. Imagine how great America really would be if we did all that. Just don't be helpless. Don't make yourself into a victim when you're not. Fight for what you believe in. Just don't be a butthead. We already have plenty of those. Be like the sheepdog and the coyote from the Bugs Bunny cartoons. Fight like heck during the day and then clock out and go home. That's my bit of advice to you after this election. Just take a breath, okay? There's a lot of things going on right now that really annoy me. And I, I, I admit, I didn't sleep really well that night after the election. It was just, um, I was really worried about the future. And that's kind of where we're all at right now, I think. Yeah, so, that's uh, great advice, Marshall. Uh, thanks. Especially the part about the, the kind of news you consume and reading opposing thoughts, I, you know, because there are some 
information out there about people on Facebook. They only read and consume things that already uh, affirm their opinion, confirm their opinion. So it's like if you're not reading uh, anything in opposition to your thoughts, then you might be just a little closed minded. Well, you know, I don't unfriend people generally. Uh, That's not. Unless they really do something egregious, you know, that's just really bad, or if they start attacking me or something stupid that I just like, I don't have time for this. I mean, you know, this is this social media. But what really annoys me is when I see people come in. I don't mind your, if you have your own opinion, but don't bring in your own facts. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem. You know, we social media is great. Um, the, the media business obviously is fractured. It's more a shotgun than it is a rifle like it used to be. And, I mean, there's some good things about that. But also, too, people can get into their own little safe place. You know, we make fun of kids on college students having safe places, but people are the same way with their media consumption. Mm -hmm. They get exactly what they want to hear, and they don't listen to anything else. I I read right across the board. I'll read the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Yeah, like you said, uh, you know, we we spoon-feed ourselves and don't necessarily do a lot of research. We just listen to other mainstream opinionists and uh, adopt their beliefs and and don't critically think uh, on our own. So. I think that's important as well. But our guest, uh, Katie Simpson-Smith, is on the line. Yeah. Uh, she definitely does a lot of research She's for brilliant. these wonderful novels. Absolutely brilliant. Um, Katie, I, I, it's really good to be able to talk to you. Thank you for being in today. And congratulations on the new novel, Free Men, which is fantastic. It is on my Christmas list. How are you doing? Katie. Uh, well, I'll tell you what. Let's take a quick break. We'll do that. And I'll see uh, what I can do because this phone is, is uh, doing some stuff that I've not seen before. <laughs> but she is on the line because I spoke to her, so we'll have to get to her right after the break. This is MPB Think Radio. We'll be back in just a minute. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. It is absolutely a bucket of chuckles here on Monday. Everything's going great. And Kevin Farrell just walked into the studio and handed me the most sinful thing I've ever had in my life. It is a chocolate-covered potato chip. Oh, my gosh. Well, I just shaved five minutes off my life, but it was well worth it. All right. Without further ado, we have a fantastic author on somebody that I definitely enjoy. I enjoyed her first book, The Story of Land and Sea, that came out in July of 2004. She has a new novel out, Free Men, and she's here to talk to us about it. Katie, it's good to talk to you again. Great to talk to you, Marshall. So um, you have been on the world book tour the last few months. Uh, how are you holding up? It's holding up well. Um, I love getting to travel around and talk to people, um, especially across the southeast. Um, those are my favorite readers. I know. You were educated at, in, in North Carolina, the University of North Carolina, uh, in Chapel Hill. Of course, that's where you got your history degree. And, of course, your books have taken place in North Carolina and now in Alabama. You have a certain thing about the south, don't you? I do. It's 
it's kind of an addictive landscape and history that we have. Um, I feel very privileged to have grown up here um, to sort of have a, a firsthand look at everything that's occurred in our past. Of course, you're a Mississippi native. You now reside down in New Orleans. And I don't know about you, but I've always I always ask this question to everybody. Do you think it's we're just a land of storytellers or just that we have great stories? That's a, it's a sort of chicken and the egg situation. It sure um, is. I think it's a little bit of both, for sure. Definitely on that. But but congratulations. Um, of course, you're, hist- you've, you're of course into history, and then you do writing as well. And, of course, you've got historical novels. I mean, talk about that a little bit. Um, how hard is that to create a book and try to write in vernacular and try to get everything right? Because I know there's a lot of people out there that just really look real closely toward at that. Yeah, it's tough. Um, you have to sort of balance the research angle of things, which is, you know, getting into the archives and figuring out what people wore and what they ate and how they talked about their lives, um, but also bringing in your imagination, which, um, you know, with my historical background, you're not really encouraged to use a whole lot of imagination as you're writing. Um, but in fiction, that's the beauty of it. Um, you get to put yourself in the heads of people who are so different from yourself. Um, I think that's one of the especially encouraging things for me in this post-election week, um, you know, I thought a lot of what you said was just so right on the spot about, you know, getting outside of your bubble. And I think that's what fiction can provide for us. Definitely. I was just thinking about the challenge of writing historical fiction is you're writing along. And if you get one little fact wrong, it's literally like you're suddenly you're driving down the road you know, as a reader and all of a sudden you get jerked off the road. So you have to be very careful. You can't, like, say, in the Revolutionary War, suddenly have a machine gun in it, for instance. That would, that would cause like problems. <laughs> Yeah, you have to you have to build up a certain amount of trust with the reader. And I think once you do that, um, there's a little bit of leeway to take license with the past. And that's something um, I've been exploring more recently. Sort of how do you how do you get all the facts? Um, how do you get the facts right and the, the general mood and tone of the era right? but also kind of inject a little bit of a modern perspective. Your three characters in, in the novel, and you've got a runaway slave, you've got a Creek Indian, and you've got a white man all together. And you write, you actually give them backstories and write in their vernacular. How difficult was that? Because I know sometimes it's very easy to create a character from the past and give them our sensibilities and our language. Right. Um, so I was very careful about how I went about researching these characters' voices, um, especially because... Um, I'm writing about men, and so as a woman, there's this sort of, you know, there's a divide between my experience and their experiences, Um, but also writing about non-white characters, which I thought was so important to any project set in the South. Um, You have to grapple with race in some way, Um, and so how to inhabit these minds in a way that's responsible, um, but also that recognizes their their equal humanity, Um, and so it was kind of a fun challenge. To, to put myself in their heads as I was writing this um, and to figure out, you know, what the lilt of their voice would have been like and what, you know, weird phrases they would have used that they would have learned from their parents or grandparents um, and to create three distinctive minds um, that, that still grew up in a certain era in, in the South. Well, give us a, just a quick synopsis of Freeman, because obviously we don't want to spoil it for our readers who are going to run out after this interview immediately and go buy the book, which of they course. should. Of course. <laughs> Um, so the book is about these three men, um, as you mentioned, who come together kind of inadvertently in the woods in South Alabama in the year 1788. Um, and they end up becoming um, highway robbers, kind of, uh, again, accidentally. Um, but they run across a band of traders that are coming down from the Creek Nation to Pensacola, and they decide that they want to steal their money. 
Um, and so all of this sort of happens in the, in the very beginning of the book. And then the rest of the novel explores both the backstories of these three men and what brought three such different men together at this moment in time. But it's also an adventure story about um, there's a Frenchman who's sent to track them down across the southeast. So we see, we see the hunt um, occur as they, as they try to escape the bounty hunter. Leclerc is the Frenchman. He's a very fascinating character to me. He kind of reminds me of kind of almost uh, a Lafayette kind of character. He's come to the New World, and he's kind of mystified and amazed about what he's seeing. He's almost writing in his journal every day uh, a little bit about that. I think he has – doesn't he have, like, thoughts of going back over to Paris and telling the whole world about all the crazy stuff he's seen in America? You know, that could happen today. Absolutely. I think his sort of outsider's perspective on what the project of our country was at that time is so interesting to get into because, um, you know, we're very stuck in the middle of it and it's hard to see you know, the different paths that our country could have taken. But for, from his perspective, you know, coming from this very sort of centuries old monarchy, um, coming to America and seeing men just like running wild in the streets in his, in his imagination um, was, a, was a really neat thing to portray. Well, and the novel's set in 1788, so you're talking at a time when that whole southeast area is complete flux because the end of the mm-hmm. revolution, the British are probably a little bit sour at this point. There's the Spaniards, you've got the Americans, so you've got all the, and of course, the Creek Nation, and you've got, the, mm-hmm. I mean, so you've got all this great melting pot bubbling over at this time, so it makes a great scene to set a novel. Exactly, yeah. I think one of the fun things to write was, was a period of American history when it wasn't certain how things were going to turn out, you know, and especially in the Southeast, you couldn't have predicted that the Americans would have gained control over that region. Well, they're um, still not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just kidding. Don't please don't run me out on a rail on that comment. I'm just joking. <laughs> so, but yeah, it was so, because some of the themes and the, the, what the, what the men were going through, what, what the characters, all the characters are going through, it just kind of reminded me, you could see little bits of today in the story. You did a really nice job weaving that thread through the story. Thank you. Let me talk a little bit here. Um, Of course, you you discovered the complexities of the South, like you said, the truth about our past. Did you feel any pressure about the book's direction, or do you see it as an opportunity just to educate and and confront some of the issues that we are facing today? Yeah, I didn't feel any pressure when I was writing it from, from anyone on the outside, because I think no one really takes a close look at that period in our history. Um, I think in the South, we're so focused on the Civil War uh, as the sort of defining moment um, for good and for bad that we forget that, you know, there was another war that happened in our region, um, you know, just six or seven years earlier. Um, And so when I was um, getting into these sources and and sort of untangling all the threads of of what happened, uh, I just... I just saw it as, as, again, what you said, such an opportunity um, to revisit our understanding of our own our own region. Let's talk about you for just a half second here. You know, when I was a kid, I mean, I was like three. I think my mom figured out I could draw, and so she started shoveling crayons at me and pencils. Your parents are both academics. Did they notice that you were able to write well early at an age, and they start helping shaping you as a writer, or is that something that just came later? I, I was definitely writing very, very young. Um, I think my trajectory was probably similar to yours. Um, when you sort of think of it as a hobby and a pastime and you don't really imagine it as a career um, until you're older and you're like, yeah, I think I, think I can do this. Um, but my parents were incredibly encouraging of any and all pursuits that, um, that me and my brother had. Um, and I think that was, that was a very lucky gift as a, as a young child growing up in Jackson. 
Well, let me ask you, why fiction? Because, I mean, it's very easy if you've got your Ph.D. in history to become a historian and write straight-up history. You've decided to go a little bit different bent to go with fiction. Why fiction? So with history, I loved finding out stories about people in the past that I didn't know about. Um, But as I was doing research for my dissertation, I kept wanting to get deeper into the emotions and the feelings of these people who didn't always leave behind a record. Um, The women and um, enslaved communities and Indian communities, um, it's really hard to find um, the voices of how they actually felt in the archives. Uh, And, you know, I I grappled a lot with my advisors about this issue and how do you bring um, someone to life when you don't have their words. Um, And I realized that, that, that's where the divide between history and fiction was, um, and I wanted to, to leap over it and um, get into wild speculation and imagine, uh, you know, how people fell in love and how people felt when, when their loved ones died, um, and the sort of the sort of emotional map of um, our historical eras. The your debut novel, The Story of the Land and the Sea, of course, it came out in 2014, did really well. Congratulations on that, by the way. Thank you. How, how tough is that to come in on the sophomore effort? Because I know a lot of times you hear the rock and roll bands, they, they come up to the second yeah. album and they kind of freeze up. Did you have any kind of a challenge or did you have kind of a yeah. sense where you wanted to go? There's definitely a lot of anxiety in publishing your second book because all of a sudden you have a benchmark. Um, with your first book, it's like, oh, no one's ever going to read this. And then it's a miracle when it gets published. Um, but the second book, you're like, oh, my gosh, people might actually read this one. <laughs> um, but for me, I, I was lucky in that I had started this project um, kind of at the same time that I started The Story of Land and Sea. Um, so I had, um, I had this novella that I was trying to expand. Um, you know, as my first novel was being published and as I was going on tour, I had this kind of in my back pocket that I was working on. So I didn't have that terrifying moment when you finish a project and then you have to reach for something brand new. Um, and that's the stage that I'm at now. <laughs> so I feel like my third novel is actually going to be like my sophomore novel in terms of being very terrifying. <laughs> you, I love this quote about you. Your favorite place to be is in bookstores, which I agree with you 100% on that, except for the fact when I go do a book signing, I try to get out of there by breaking even, not buying more books than I sell. Do you that's ever have impossible. that problem? I do. Gosh, all the time. Oh, my gosh. I, the last time I went on book, on book tour, uh, my publicist wanted me to fly, and I said, no, I have to drive because I know that I'm going to acquire a massive amount of books. Um, and so I filled my trunk up with books the last time I went on tour. Yeah, it's funny because most authors always have a trunk full of books. Yours are just other <laughs> authors, right? Yeah. Exactly. Well, you are coming home. It's good that you're going to be back. You're going to be back in Jackson, I guess, tomorrow night at 430. You're going to be the part of the Visiting Writers Series as well at yeah. Millsaps. How exciting is that? Oh, I love I love doing events at Millsaps. Um, it's where my parents work, and so I always feel like I'm you know the little kid who gets to come home again. Yeah, and it's kind of nice because your parents get to see you, and they realize, hey, she's not going to move back in with us. She's doing well. <laughs> We'll see about that. I know. I, I think my dad, up until his very dying day, probably was afraid I was going to move back in. He's like, what do you do for a living again? I said, don't worry, Dad. I, I'm going to be okay. He said, well, the kids can move in, but not you. It's like, oh, well, thanks. So, But that's going to be great. And, of course, that's tomorrow night. Well, let's see. I'm trying to think of a couple things. I'll talk a little bit more about the novel because it's Free Men. It's your second novel. It's out there now, and it's it's doing well. I Seriously, I mean, on the research on that, did you? Um, how long did it take you to actually sit down and do the research of the area? Because I mean, you're talking about an area that's pretty much Alabama now. Um, 
How long did it do that? I'm just kind of curious because for me, when I sit down and write something, I'm just making it all up. You're you're actually, it it does take the research. It does. Um, And you sort of have to balance as you're going along um, how much you're researching and how much you're writing. Because I think it's really easy for historical fiction writers to get stuck in the books um, because we want to know as much as we can about a period to really flesh it out and make it seem real. Um, but it can it can be hard to drag yourself out of that stack of books and turn to a fresh blank page. Um, so I tried to sort of write um, write the story first, and then as I was writing, I would come to these moments where I didn't know, um, you know, what kind of tree they would encounter on this you know this side of a river, and so I would stop and you know look up old natural histories of, of the region. Um, but yeah, there was just a lot of really interesting sort of research challenges. Um, I think overall it took a couple of years to write the book. Oh, wow. Um, so yeah, um, but it's it's always sort of a mix between between finding those details and then and then letting your imagination run wild. Well, let me ask you this because I, I don't know about you. Of course, I, my reviews obviously are on a much smaller scale. But when you start seeing the the New York Times and the Washington Post start reviewing your work, what is that like? You open it up and your your hands are shaking a little bit, or you go kind of talk about that feeling when you read one of your reviews. Oh, it's pretty it's pretty awful. I think <laughs> good reviews and bad reviews are both um, kind of haunting in a way. Right. Um, you know, you you write this thing that's that's primarily for yourself. You write it to to sort of make yourself happy and then you put it out in the world and yeah. readers respond to it in so many different ways. Um, you know, I think, I think authors typically avoid reading like Amazon reviews because um, those are, are the sort of most brutally honest and terrifying. Um, but it, it, it speaks to the fact that readers are going to take any number of things from your book and you can't control that. And I think that's kind of the beauty of reading um, that someone will come to your work and really identify with a certain character and will hate all your other characters. Um, so I think reading reading reviews, you always take with a grain of salt as a writer. Um, and I think I'm just incredibly appreciative that anyone thinks that my work is worth talking about, even if it's you know in a negative light. I think you nailed something there because I've a long time ago I learned not to read the comment section underneath the cartoon because <clears throat> sometimes never read the comments. No, 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 because you're thinking, oh, please don't let your children marry my children, you know that kind of sort of thing. Yeah. But I mean, seriously, if people can read one of your novels and they're moved enough to sit down and take their precious time yeah. to comment on it, then you've done something well. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the most positive way to look at it, for sure. Well, you're you're a fantastic writer. You've just there are some really golden moments in this book, and, and you should be very proud of it. I know I'm l- really Thank looking you. forward to just plowing through it and enjoying it. It's gonna it's on my list, although I buy it before Christmas. That's how I normally do it. But uh, congratulations! It's just fun to watch your career take off. You're one of you're one of the good people, and it's good to see this work out for you. Oh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, and good luck tomorrow night. That's, of course, the the Visiting Writer Series at Millsaps College. How can folks find out more about that? I think um, there should be something up on the Millsaps website. Um, That's easy enough. 4.30 p.m. in the academic complex. Excellent. Good deal. Katie, it's good to talk to you. Great to talk to you, Marshall. All right. Coming up, we have got a very inspirational story of a guy who just basically got a bad ni- diagnosis and has stuck out his tongue at it and is doing pretty amazing things through his art. DeAndre Jones will be joining us in just a minute. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey. Hey, great show so far today. Thank you for listening. Our next guest, um, you ever imagine getting that diagnosis that completely knocks you off your feet? And, you know, it's real easy at that point to throw a pity party, you know, to be honest with you. And I mean, I got it with cancer, but mine was pretty easy. I just had a little surgery. I'm good. I'm in good for 15 years. Our next guest, though, is a guy that I really respect for not only what he's been through, but his attitude toward it. DeAndre Jones is joining us. And I tell you what, DeAndre, also, you might know him under the name 808 The, the Base. The Base. That's yes. it. You probably love that. That's a great name, too. Thank you. Thank you. DeAndre, good to have you here today. Man, I appreciate you guys inviting me out. It's, it's amazing. You know, we, there's so much in our life we just take for granted. You know, yeah. you go to the store, you pick up some milk, you mm-hmm. know, you throw it in your... But one day you went to the store and you picked up some milk and you couldn't pick up the milk. Yeah, something so easy and something that was so routine, it just became difficult. I tried to use everything I could, my hip, my back, my arm, and I just couldn't get the the gallon of milk up in the refrigerator. That's when I started to realize something was really wrong with me. Right. And then I started, you know, I would go to... I would go to doctors, but I would go to like MEAs and things like that, little quick fix places. Yeah. And they really couldn't tell me anything. They put me on a small dosage of a steroid. Really? And I would start taking that. And it's crazy how your mind works because I would take the steroid and I would make myself believe that things were getting better. Exactly. When in reality, it wasn't doing anything for me. You know, in, in my situation, I just went from doctor to doctor to doctor because mm-hmm. I kept having this nagging feeling something was wrong. And it sounded like you did that, too. Mm-hmm. What did you finally get to the point where you ran across a doctor who could figure out what was going on with you? Wow. Um, it took me at least about a year before they could figure out what was wrong with me. They, um, I was down 60 pounds of body weight. I was 123 pounds. And I finally came across a doctor in an ER that ran. And you're a pretty good sized guy. I mean, so that's a lot. I mean, you were pretty skinny. Yeah. 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 I I went from 185 to 123. But, um, yeah, one of the doctors, they it was a neurosurgeon. He just wanted to run a couple tests on me and they ran some tests on me and eventually did a, a biopsy where it cut a little bit of muscle out. Yeah. And after I got the results back, they told me I had a very rare muscle disease called idiopathic inflammatory myopathy. What's so strange about this is the fact that they don't know what caused it. No. And they don't know how to cure it. Not at all. I mean, that's mm. that's nuts. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. It really is. And, like, I don't – the mental part of it, because how do you deal with something like that? Exactly. I was mm. going to ask you how you did, because, I mean, that's one of those kind of things that just completely sweeps you off your feet. And it's really yeah. easy to get depressed when you cause when you feel yeah. like you have no way of controlling this. But you found a way. I just – I'm going to be honest, like a lot of people would tell me, oh, you're inspirational and things like that, which right. I, and I appreciate that. I've learned that after a while. But in the beginning, I told people that I was just trying not to die. Right. That's what I was trying to avoid. So I figured as long as I kept pushing, I would like those five, if I tripped and fell yeah. and nobody was around and I was on the ground for five hours, well, eventually these five hours would be over. Yeah. So I'm going to just try to keep myself together mentally until someone comes home to pick me up off the ground or something like that. I mean, when you're sitting there and the doctor's telling you that you're going to get to the point where you can't move and mm-hmm. your lungs are basically going to, you're going to drown because your lungs can't, mm-hmm. can't work. Yeah. How do you take that? I mean, I've always been somewhat of a, a positive person. Yeah. So when I hear that, like a lot of things that happen to me 
when they happen. All right, I, I might dwell on them for the first five, ten minutes or a, a little bit of time, but then I start looking towards the bigger picture. Right. You know, so, okay, well, if this is going to happen, I need to do everything I can for my daughter. That's it. Or do everything yeah. that I possibly can to make my name or my legacy or whatever you want to call it known before yeah. it's my time to get out of here. You had a reason to live. Yes. Yeah, and you know the bigger picture was pretty little, actually. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. my daughter, my beautiful daughter. Yeah, how old is she now? She's six now. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so you're going to live to be an old man, and she's going to think, oh, my dad's really cool. Yeah, that's what that's what I hope. Yeah. That's what I hope. I'm you, Superman to her. Exactly. <laughs> well, you, you are to me at this point. You really are. You know, how long did they, I mean, you outlived any projections of doctors threw at you, didn't, haven't you? Yeah, when I was, when they finally admitted me to the hospital and I had to spend like a month and a half in the hospital and rehab, they told me then that eventually I would be completely paralyzed. I was about 80% paralyzed, but yeah. they told me I would eventually be, become completely paralyzed and then respiratory failure was shut in. I mean, yeah. set in and everything was shut down. So, I mean, I really didn't think I had much longer to go. Right. But I wasn't going to sit, like I say, I wasn't going to sit there and dwell on that and constantly focus on that. How'd you pop back? A lot of physical therapy. Yeah. Um, they started putting me on these treatments I would have to go to once a week that lasted about seven hours. And they would just pump me full of this medication. And I just stuck with it, stuck with it. And I, like I say, I tried to pay attention to my goals and what I want to accomplish. And I didn't so much worry about what I was dealing with. Yeah. You walked into the studio. You yeah. Know, you're walking strong. You really are. Yeah. But at one point, you had to have your, your, your family carry you, literally like a sack yeah. of potatoes over their shoulder. Yes, every single day. And the type of person I am, I don't like to ask people to do things for me. Yeah. So it was a lot for me to have to ask my brother, hey, can you pick me up? So if he could be sitting next to me and... I sat down on the couch, and once I sit down, I'm there until someone gets me. Yeah. Well, I've been sitting on the couch next to him four hours. Well, I had to use the bathroom two hours ago, <laughs> but I just didn't want to ask him, you know. And eventually, you have to humble yourself and just, hey, man, can you can you get me? Can you lift me up and just take me to the bathroom, things like that? And, you know, eventually, I like I say, I got used to it. You you don't dwell on what's happened. You kind of say, okay, what what can I make my story? Yeah, it's not yeah. what happened. It, it's classic example of that, yeah. and you've turned a lot of that pain and emotions. You poured it into your music. Mm -hmm. You've got the album My Story out, and I mm -hmm. watched the video Breathe. Yes, which is about two and a half minutes of incredible, just complete power. Thank you. Because you're just laying there on the ground. Yeah, and that was that was true. Yeah, that video was so true. The word, matter of fact, that song was the first song I did when I actually gained a little bit of my independence back. Yeah, that was the first thing I wrote, and that was the first vision I had for that video, and I just wanted people to feel what I felt. It's on YouTube, folks. Look it up because it really, um, of course, it's under eight hundred eight the base. Yes, sir. So, um, very very powerful on that. Talk about I wanted to to jump in really quickly sure. and ask uh, DeAndre about your performance as an artist you know mm. you see folks usually when you're an artist you can move around freely and you can jump and do things but you're a little restricted physically so yes. how did you adjust your live performance and make it unique um, I really just like you said I can't jump around and things like that but I wanted to be able to give people an actual show so that's why I put together my story my story is like an hour and a half long show where I tell the entire story and I put music in there, um, as well as I speak vocally. I give interviews, never, bef never before seen footage. Um, 
you know, I tried to add in all kinds of different things to give mm-hmm. you a show. And it's very hard, especially for local artists, to command someone's attention for an hour and a half straight. And I, yeah. I do it every show, and every show people love it. So how was the studio process, recording? Because sometimes it can take a long time to, to record a song. How it, was that It had uh, to be process? exhausting. I'm going to be honest. I've done this a while. Okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the, the recording part was probably part of the easiest because, like I say, I'm not one of those people that's in there trying to make up something believable, mm-hmm. you know, that people will gravitate towards. I just, I gave you my life and you either going to like it or you're not. Yeah. But there's a lot of people that they understand where I'm coming from. Definitely on that. How's it, how's your dad dealing with it? Cause that's got to be tough on him. My dad. Yeah. You all right. Yeah. My dad, he, he deals with it. You know, he, it's, it's easier for him to deal with it because yeah. my mother, like in the process in the very beginning of this, my mother, she had a stroke. What? Yeah. My mother's oh. only 43, 40. She turned her neck and tore her artery and was passed out in Adela's dressing room for like 30 minutes before anybody found her. So he had to deal with that as yeah. well as me. We, we're a tough family. Very tough we family. get through these things. So you apparently have a very tough daughter too, right? Oh, yeah. My daughter is amazing. When she was two, she had no idea what was wrong, but she saw something was wrong, and she would help me pick my legs up and put them in the bed, things like that. Wow. Yeah, she just automatically knew something wasn't right. So that's the thing. You wake up every day, and you have your goals. Yeah, you're every just, day. Every day. So you're doing the shows. Um, you've got, are you still writing? You're writing for the next album? Oh, yes. Yes, I'm always writing. I'm always... I told someone the other day, I'm a slave to my... I hate to see you swear slave, but I'm a slave to my own creativity. Yeah. Like, I would... If I ever stopped what I was doing, it would drive me crazy, always wondering if, what if, what if I had kept going. They still do treatments with you? You still doing physical therapy? Uh, I got away from the physical therapy. Um, I still do treatments here and there, but I'm trying to do another method of healing. Yeah. Um, I just realized, I just found out probably about three, four months that I'm diabetic. Oh, really? Yeah, I have an autoimmune version of diabetes, diabetes 2, and what they're trying to consider diabetes 3, which is my brain is reducing, ins- I mean, resisting insulin, really? yeah. which will eventually cause um, Alzheimer's. Oh, yeah, you don't want that. Nah, so no. I'm right now I'm dieting and I'm exercising, and these are my ways of trying. I have another doctor that I'm working with, and he believes he can heal me, actually. Really? Yeah, that's what he believes. That's excellent. Wow. Today is National Diabetes Day, by the way. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> yeah. I saw that. <laughs> like, there you go. There you go on that. Talk a little bit. Um, I mean, just seriously, you've got the, but it doesn't seem to be slowing you down. And that's all part of attitude, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. It slows me down. I take yeah. life a lot slower now. Right. <laughs> yeah, I walk slower and everything. But as far as what I'm trying to accomplish, no, I feel like I'm doing better than ever. Yeah, you truly feel like that. What's important now is what's important. Yes. Yeah. Isn't it amazing how suddenly all that little BS stuff that, you know, used to just drive you nuts, it suddenly just goes away. It doesn't matter anymore. I'm focused on the bigger picture. I have the power, which is crazy to say because someone else had to tell me this. They were like, man, what you deal with, you have the power to help people. Yeah. And I really do. And I never paid attention to it. I get a lot of emails, uh, messages, phone calls about people that you would never know or even dealing with anything, and they'll tell me, I relate to your story, or I know what you're going through, or you've helped me get through this morning or this day. 
Isn't it amazing, though, because you think you're the only person in the world that's having to face this. Yeah. And then when you make it public like that and you, mm-hmm. you have the courage to put yourself out there like mm-hmm. you've done, suddenly you start feeling back and then you realize, oh, by you giving back, it helps you in the long run. Yes. Yeah, it yeah. really did. That's the whole reason I started doing it in the first place. Yeah. Like at first, I didn't tell anybody what was wrong with me. Right. I just started because I was so self-conscious and insecure and embarrassed about what I was going through. Yeah. Then it got to a point where it said, you know what? I'm going to put it out here in front of everybody because if I do, what can you say about me that can bother me? Right. So once I started doing that, that's when all the other people started coming to me and they were like, oh, well, I have this and I have that. And I was like, wow, I would have never known. You know, it's, I think your daughter seeing you as a role model, she's going to be very strong. I hope so. She's going to be so. strong. She's yeah. strong now. <laughs> when they when they were treating you, I, think, I thought this was interesting. They just gave you an IV full of nutrients. Um, I mean, it was medicine and what all, how old did, I'm just, just curious, how did they treat you to get your muscles to wake back up? Um, it's not necessarily just nutrients. They gave me one medicine called a uh, Caramune. Yeah. And it's like 7,000 a bottle. Wow. Yeah. On top of Solumedrol, which I believe is a steroid. Yeah. And that's what kind of gave me a little bit more of my independence back. But even then, after doing about a year, year and a half of that, they told me, well, it's only so so much is going to help. It's really like I plateaued with that yeah. medicine, and there's nothing more that it can really do to me, right? Do for me. So it's like now, I'm, okay. These are the cards I've been dealt. Now, yeah. let's, now let's play my hand. Exactly. And you've played it very well. Thank you, Thunder. Thank, thank you for joining us today. And I of appreciate course, you the album is my story. You my can story. find it all the places you find music, right? Yes, yes. And you, if you definitely want to get it, get it. It's on 808thebass.bandcamp.com. Also, check me out on Instagram at 808.thabass. Man, thank you for this inspiration on a Monday morning. Man, thank you for having me. That's awesome. Coming up next, well, we got a question of the day. Now that the election's over, are you more worried or excited for the future of America? We'd love to hear from you. The number is 877-672-7464. That's 877-MPB-RING. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. I don't know about you, but I am inspired. DeAndre Jones, what an incredible interview, 808 the base. Great guy. Great, 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 great story, too. All right. We did throw out a question of the day, and I think it's one that um, a lot of people are thinking about these days. Now that the election is over, are you more worried or excited about the future of America? You can call us at 877-672-7464. That's 877-MPB-RING. And we actually have a couple callers now. That's very cool. Leslie. Hello, Leslie. What are your thoughts on the question of the day? Hello and good morning. Um, my thoughts were scrambled for about the past week, but I have settled on that I'm actually excited about the future for our nation, um, but not for necessarily the reasons people might think. Um, I think we should all stay worried about our friends and loved ones who are especially vulnerable, and I think that this election and, and everything that came in the past about 18 months, really, has given us an opportunity to learn grace and learn to live with each other honestly 
and to not be ashamed of who we truly are and what we truly believe and to fight for those things no matter what. And so that's how I'm sort of internalizing all this. And I hope that uh, more people do that. Leslie, that's a, that's a great answer. That really is. That's kind of where I'm at, too, because I'm like, you know, I'm not going to sit there. I have never my life has never been terribly influenced by one person in Washington. So I'm not going to mm-hmm. really get upset about that now. And I'm going to try to just figure out what I can do on my own to make a difference. And it sounds like that's exactly. what you're doing. Right. I think it just lit a fire under everybody. <laughs> yep. All right. Great call. Thanks, Leslie. I appreciate it. We've got Mary and Braxton. Hello, Mary. Your co- the question of the day is this. Now that the election is over, are you more worried or excited about the future of America? What do you say? Hello? Yeah, she says hello. Hello, Mary. How are you? What's, what's your thoughts? I, I didn't hear my name, so I wasn't sure who you were. I was talking to you. So what, what, what are right. your thoughts? My thought is that something that I learned oh, way back, that no matter what the, the uh, candidates promise you, they still have to go through the the rest of the country, and uh, we all have uh, our opinions, and uh, I think we all have some good sense that uh, we go we go in cycles. Oh, we do, we do. First that- this side, and then that side, and then we get. Sometimes we get better, sometimes we get worse. <laughs> That's true. And, you know, Mary, I mean, you call up frequently, and I, and I really think the world of you because you seem like a very nice person, but you and I probably disagree on some things at the end of the day, but I still enjoy hearing from you. Well, right? thank you. Yeah, so, I, I mean, that's the I way we should be with talk- everybody, right? Yeah, I enjoy talking with you. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Mary. Appreciate that. Um, I don't know, Sharita. You know, after the interview we just had, it's a little bit hard to get real upset about anything that's happening on Facebook or anywhere else, you know? Yeah, she's she's nodding. So, oh, she can't hear me. All right. So, all right. Well, I didn't see that. Rose in Covington. Hello, Rose. What's your thoughts on the election and, you know, how the future of America? I'm calling from Covington, Louisiana, and I am scared spitless. You are? Yes, sir. What, what particularly scares you? The divisiveness. Yeah. We have a person who has absolutely no qualifications, no experience. I mean, absolutely no previous public service whatsoever. And he is surrounding himself with right extremist wing nuts. And everyone's kind of going, oh, business as usual, what's on TV? Right. Yeah, it's going to be kind of interesting. I, you know, I kind of have to think that probably the night after the election, he was probably sitting there going, oh, no, like I'm probably saying something much more uh, profane and I, which I can't say on the air. But I think it shocked him even that he won. Yeah. You know, there's a meme going around on the Facebook of him looking up and saying, Siri, how does a law become a bill? How does a bill become a law? Yeah, I, you know, right. And, and, you know, you, the nice thing the founders did is we have this nice, um, you know, you've got, hopefully, I mean, hopefully the, the legislative branch and the judicial branch, everything will work out at the end. But yeah, no, I, I understand your worry. I hear that from a lot of people. Yeah, there's a lot of people that don't have a lot of power and young people, older people, sick people, you know, if you cut, Free act, or you limit access to birth control if you restrict or limit access to abortion. And I don't care what your opinion is on that. But if you do that, then if you restrict access to affordable health care, then if you go ahead and make tax cuts that might hurt single parents, 
I mean, okay, you can be pro-life, but can you not somehow be pro-family along the way and support these people? Yeah. Yeah, I'd tell you, great call, Rose. I appreciate it. We got another call. We're going to get to him. Roger and Florence. Hello, Roger. What are your thoughts? Just leave it with that last caller. Uh-huh. What are your thoughts on it? Because you're obviously going to give the opposing point of view. No, not not totally, because it would take too long. But I am a conservative I am a conservative mm-hmm. liberal. I am conservative constitutionally. Right. I am liberal socially. The mistakes we've made uh, have been people with big hearts small minds, mm-hmm. and we've gone the long way for so long. We've got too many politicians up there who want to be lifetime politicians, and that's about the only mistake our founding fathers made. We, we need term limits. We don't need uh, career politicians. The only trouble with this election is we didn't, get, we didn't clean house enough. We've got a guy up there who's going to clean house in the executive branch, but we've got Republicans and Democrats who've been there forever and who want to keep things the same. So my message is, read the Constitution, teach your children the Constitution, and try to go by that. And let's, let's don't increase the modern slavery state where we make everybody dependent on the federal government. Let's cut back. Let's be conservative constitutionally. And let's, let's live socially. Let's do the right thing for the people who need it. And let's Let's don't take from the givers and give to the takers. Let's teach the takers to All right. make. Well, and, we're up against we haven't done that. All right, Roger. Great call. Thank you for giving that point as well. I think we got some good answers, and we had a couple great interviews today. I would like to thank both Katie Simpson-Smith. Her new novel is, of course, Free Men, and she will be at the Visiting Writers Series tomorrow at Millsaps College at 4.30 in the afternoon. And also want to thank... DeAndre Jones, 808 The Base, for a fantastic, very inspirational interview as well. Sharita, thank you for doing all you do and producing the show. Coming up next is Southern Remedy. This is Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio, and we'll see you next week.